Before we go and discuss what you referred to as an elite beginning, an elite beginning for growth and development, we need to define what constitutes poverty and what constitutes an escape from poverty. The economic takeoff that we saw in Asia and that we hope to see across the African continent. So, it's very hard to think of escaping from very high levels of extreme poverty in a country unless we actually get the economy to grow. And so economics growth is a part of it, but that doesn't define the escape of poverty. But then, 15 years ago, the Growth Commission, which was a commission led by Nobel Prize winner Michael Spence, that kind of saying, look, countries that historically have managed to grow for about 30 years at about 7% per capita, they seem to be countries that are taking off. 7% is quite a lot, but actually that's what says East Asian economies were achieving in that period. That's a minimal amount that you would say, well, that would be a kind of a put towards takeoff. In the poverty side, of course, you know, you don't want this to be just based on natural resources that people just put in their pockets. So you talk about progress in health, progress in education, progress in a number of different indicators, and I would say takeoff means, you know, you get your economy to grow, but you also make sure that what happens to poorest group in your society, their loss is actually improving as well. Okay, now, in your book, you talk about this elite gamble on growth and development. If an elite is doing very well already, let's say there is a lot of, and the elite is happy to share the oil. Why on earth would they, would, would they take a gamble on development if things aren't going quite well from their own very narrow perspective? What forced an elite to gamble when then what examples for how we think where that is actually paying out so let me give you an example of what you just described. I think there is very much a kind of an elite bargain, basically a deal between those with power and influence that somehow is stuck. Nigeria earns something like $500 per person on oil revenue each year. $500 is not that much, but in a country of 2 million people, if you don't divide it among 2 million people, but say you divide it among 200 people, these 200 million people have half million, half million, and it's exactly what you described. Why would these 200 million people, those people with power and influence in Nigeria, bother with actually changing the whole thing? I think that's unfortunately what's happening there, and changing that it's a quite a jump because we may not be able to pocket that anymore, and so. This suggests somehow that quite a lot of countries may not do this, and it makes it even more remarkable if at some point elites decide to actually try to do this. So let me give an example where I think this is happening. Historically, and I think China is an example where at some point after a period of turmoil, the Cultural Revolution, Mao's death and the Gang of Au Four, we're talking about 1970s now, in 1979, Deng Xiaoping and other people in the parties basically decided they were going to take a gamble on a different course. They probably did this because they were losing at legitimacy among their population. This was a matter of survival for them, so that's one reason why they would gamble for success 
their growth and development, and they did it, and at all costs they were grind to get that economy to grow. If you go to Africa and Ghana, I would actually say probably in the 1990s, after Jerry Rawlings allowed multi-party democracy to come back, I think the political elites kind of gambled on this, we will be recognizing that the political instability that but existed in the 1970s and so until Jerry Rawlings took power in the early 1980s. If it had allowed to be continued, they probably wouldn't have been able to last very long. And they actually got themselves saying, well, let's get this democracy to work in Jena. Whenever someone was elected from the other party, we would allow them to govern and we would take the political transitions as they came and then somehow get the politics to involve, as we now have in Ghana, which is increasingly based on outcomes, on results and on progress. So that's a very different type of country that's actually to avoid instability, let's say. Well, let's give the system a chance and let's make the best of it. That's an example for me of country, it's grown quite, growing quite well now, poverty has come down quite significantly. Yes, there is corruption, this is not a perfect country, but it is really striking progress in that country. Hello, this is Financial Times. Now we are reading an article. A make or break meeting for the WTO, the World Trade Organization. Good morning from the Financial Times. Today is Wednesday. And this is your afternoon's briefing. The World Trade Organization is trying to prove it's still credible. If it can't move forward in terms of reducing subsidies and easing trade flows, then people ask, you know, what's the point of it? The US dollar is strong, but that's actually a bad thing for American companies. Plus, Ukraine is laying out a weapons wish list ahead of a meeting with Western nations. I'm Mar Filipino, and here's the news you need to start your day. The World Trade Organization has been responsible for basically accelerating globalization for the past two and a half decades. But as the group meets this week in Geneva, it will be under a cloud of possible deglobalization. The FTS and this bound is in Geneva covering the WTO meeting now. Hey Andy, hey Mark. Alright, so what are the stakes here? Why is this such an important meeting for the WTO? Yeah, so this is the first meeting of three ministers together from, from 164 countries since, since 2017. That meeting broke up without an agreement because of a dispute over farming subsidies, which is a perennial but there for the WTO and it is really a question of credibility I mean the WTO still does 
its day-to-day work, but if it can't move forward in terms of reducing subsidies and easing trade flows, then people ask, you know, what's the point of it? Now, Andy, you are on the wrong of the WTO meeting. What's the mood like there? It's pretty frantic and fraught. Most ministers will do leading today and they desperately want to get bills on at least one of the five areas that are looking at. They talks, the talks I'm told are stuck in some areas. They are in chaining forward, but there's nobody predicting bills on anything in particular. Today, in what people call a make or break meeting for the WTO, BTO. And why is there the fear of globalization right now? Yeah, I mean, there's been the trauma of the pandemic, Donald Trump, the White House, the rise of China, which is seen to be not playing by the same global rules as many other members of the WTO. So you've got this massive shift of the system, which is causing a sort of fragmentation in trade. So people are starting to talk about friendshoring rather than offshoring. So you give investment and invest in trade with countries that you're allied with. Who are the biggest players? I know that all countries in the WTO have to sign off on any agreement, but who has the most influence? Yeah, whoever really got force, you know, there's the US, the EU, China and India. You know, it has to be said, the biggest block, the most things at the moment. People tell me it's India, which tends to, you know, want to be treated as a poor developing nation and get a special care out from certain areas and every country reluctant to give it to one of the biggest countries in the world. So this is something the World Trade Organization can take off? Yeah, that's a great question, Mark, because of course everybody has to agree. This is a consensus driving organization. Any one member can stop things. And of course in today in today's world it's pretty hard to get everybody to agree on things. You know, they're trying to get the deal to end the harmful fishing practices which are underpinned by millions of societies around the world. They are also trying to get an agreement that countries will sell food to the World Food Program so it can feed the starving and believe it or not, here are still countries which are holding out saying, you know, we might not be able to part with our food to the World Food Program because we might need it for ourselves. Andy Bounce is the FTU's correspondent. He's in Geneva covering the World Trade Organization meeting going on now. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, Mara. The US dollar is very strong right now, but this is actually hard to American companies. The financial technology firm career reports that a strong dollar has already knocked off 40 billion dollars from North American companies' earnings. And this just in the first half of this year. The FT's Kate Dugit explains why. When the dollar is stronger, it means that companies that have large exposures to international markets often lose money because the cost of their products go up abroad. So that's especially true for a company like Microsoft, right? Which depends on a lot of sales of software, laptops, whatever else sales abroad. And sales are worse abroad because products are more expensive for foreigners. Okay, so let's back up a little bit. We still are so strong right now. So there is initial phenomenon with the dollar where it bought 
outperform when the US is doing a lot better than its peers and it also performs better when everyone is in recession, right? But like the US dollar is the same heaven as it. So when markets are really volatile, when there is a risk of recession, people fall into dollar because it's the same how it is said. And so for the first half of this year, we've seen the dollar benefiting, in part because the US has been raising rates, but also the US economy has been doing better than a lot of its peers. In the second half of the year, we may see the dollar continue to outperform because everybody is scared of a recession. So, Russia, part of his picture of Russia becoming increasingly dependent on China, but what about Southeast Asia? Where do you think they'll go in this picture? Well, I think that there are tensions and a lot will depend on how durable are the US security commitments. I think that these are some long-term investments and the Pentagon will have some consistency. But China is their giant neighbor, they don't want to choose. But ultimately China is the reality that they are facing. It's the largest trading partner, investor, technology provider, a huge market and China will be there. So I think that they will try not to choose as long as they can. But countries like Cambodia and others will be increasingly more reliant on China and more aligned with the China camp. And looking at the very long term of Chinese-Russian relationship, it's always struck me that China talk about recovering from the sense of humiliation, the land taking away from them. When a lot of the land they lost in the 19th century was to Russia. Is that somewhere at the back of everyone's mind or not? I think that this used to be a concern for Russia for quite a long time. Now, the border is officially delimited. We don't have a territorial dispute with the Chinese. Russia is a nuclear superpower and just doing something offensive. And kinetic is very dangerous. That's not the risk calculation on the Chinese side. And then demographically, China is an aging population and it's going to be a shrinking population. So just the demographic potential to populate these areas is not there. Chinese diaspora in the Far East is also shrinking because of the worst period of the Russian economy, COVID and many other things. So I don't think that this is a concern. If, and that's one of the scenarios the gates from now. Russia will be less stable. It will be more separatism by ethnic minorities or regions, and then Russia basically falls apart. I think that this is a very unlikely scenario, but that's one of the scenarios people should look into. Think things might turn different, but I ascribe to I like less than 10% weight. So finally, I just looking back. I mean, I'm very intrigued by by your description of Russia as this giant new era, what's what gonna be like for the Russian middle places? I mean, you and I met in 2018 during the World Cup, which felt like a very open moment for Russia. The place was full of rain, Russian fat. 
you know, unless proficiently, like a kind of part of people to work in the same brands. Ordinary Russians were mixings with Westerners who traveled back then, but now they face a very, very different reality where they can't travel to the West. And I guess the kind of little consumer goods that made life more interesting are gonna disappear. Some people will leave the country and they are living laughing. Also because if your kids will be educated in school that Ukrainians were building a nuclear bomb to threaten Russia and that we need to go and kill Ukrainians because they were a challenge to our national security. I don't want my kids to be educated that way and then talk at home to their mom and their family about how the real world looks and have this kind of split-screen imagine. We've been there during the Soviet Union. I don't want my family to be there, but many people don't have the options that I have. So, they, they I will stay. There are a lot of people who don't support it, but they don't have the means or opportunities to go outside. And then we have a lot of experience. We lived under the Soviet Union, behind the Iron Curtain. Life is terror still. It's not only about consumer goods. There will be hopefully literature. Russia is a great culture, but yes, Russia benefited when it was open to the world in the 19th century or early 20th century and recently. The irony and the tragedy is that two decades under Putin were one of the happiest periods in Russian history where the country was relatively free and relatively wealthy per capita and now unfortunately it's gone. So what happened? I mean and something changed in Putin's mind that he moved from it his one society that he was building, that he was building to risk it all. I think that his grievances about the West and the wounded Eco Plus security concerns were mounting over time, but then there was COVID where he was stuck like his social circle got gradually reduced. He was arguably reading some terrible literature about Russian history that was not very well informed. But that set him on a certain pattern of thinking, and then he saw also window of opportunity where Ukraine was his unfinished business. You have a weak U.S. president, and that was the imagine after the Afghanistan withdrawal. You have a missing presidency in Ukraine. There is an energy crisis. You believe that you 